0: are listening to the Addiction Files where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. All right, welcome. We are going to talk about kratom today, and we're going to discuss the origin and history of kratom, the mechanism of action and risks of use symptoms of acute intoxication and treatment, withdrawal and long-term management, and just a brief summary of the laws surrounding kratom use. Paula, tell us a little bit about kind of the history of use and kind of how this came to be.
1: Sure. Well, kratom is a plant. It's a tree that's native to the tropical regions of Southeast Asia, particularly Thailand Malaysia and Indonesia and it's actually a tree that's in the coffee family uh, has big large dark green leaves that are glossy and there are multiple different kinds of kratom leaves and trees each one of them has kind of different uh, chemical composition of its of its leaves kind of think about the cannabis plant the marijuana plant and how you can have different chemical makeup of the same species there and the kratom, plant has been used historically in Thailand and Malaysia to boost energy and to increase productivity in laborers, similar to how cocoa leaves were used in South America. It was chewed mostly in this population um, or brewed as a tea. And sometimes in Thailand, it was combined with codeine and Coca-Cola and ice and cough syrup, and it's a popular drink. It sounds pretty much like a cocktail for disaster for us, right, Darlene? Yes. But in this country, it's gained popularity and it's widely accessible because it is not regulated. There's some history surrounding that, which we're going to talk about, but it has activities on the opioid receptor and it has some stimulant effects and so it can be used as a tea because of the leaves it can be brewed that's very commonly how i see it being used here in this country people buy it in a powdered form or the leaf form or they buy it in encapsulated form so it comes powdered and in, in capsules and um, they're using it for the effect that it was pretty much being used in southeast asia to increase energy, to reduce fatigue. Some people say it's helpful for anxiety, much like you would expect opioids are used in in a vulnerable population. Because it does have opioid effects, it reduces pain. Again, this is kind of dose dependent. We're going to talk about this in a minute. And it has gained some attention as a treatment for opioid and even alcohol withdrawal. Now, this is obviously not an FDA approved treatment for opioid withdrawal. And in fact, because it is an opioid agonist, it can cause opioid dependence and opioid use disorder, right? Uh, much like other opioids, uh, kratom is also antitussive and anti-diarrheal. So it's constipating. People tout it as a libido enhancer, probably because of the stimulant effect and a mood enhancer. But There are no approved medical uses for kratom, Darlene, okay? It's often used in Malaysian folk medicine and it's under FDA review for significant safety concerns, actually. Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: Right, yeah. So maybe talk about the pharmacology and we'll understand a little bit more about the psychoactive alkaloids that are responsible for these effects. Yes. So there's 25
0: different alkaloids that have been identified, but the two that are most concerning is mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine. And they have multiple Effects So there is opiate agonism, and this includes mu, alpha and kappa receptor activity. There's also serotonergic, adrenergic activity that has been noted, and alpha agonism, interesting enough with this drug, noted to be 25% as potent as morphine when you have that opiate agonism effect with, with these alkaloids. There was a really interesting article, Paula, that we were talking about. So this came from Christopher McCurdy um, that was posted. And this is just some observational, so there's not a lot of data. But this is from the University of Florida, College of Pharmacy, talking about particularly the 7-hydroxymetrogynine. hydroxy What you talked about is how sometimes it's being prepared and distributed and why we're seeing some of these effects with addiction and deaths with this. And we'll we'll talk more about that. But it's the potency and those prevalence of that seven hydroxymetrionine that seems to be when you have these dried leaves, you have a higher presence of that particular alkaloid and that seems to have sometimes more of that toxic effect and so I thought that was really interesting and that seems to be when you had it kind of in traditionally in the past and when it was used in the folk medicine the way it was prepared they were immediately harvesting the leaves and then the way they were preparing their teas traditionally it was you had very low levels, they weren't using dried leaves. And so you were not getting a significant level of the 7-hydroxyametric So it seems like that substance is what's particularly addicting. And it seems to be 14 times more potent than morphine, Paula. Isn't that concerning?
1: Yeah, it is. So out of all the alkaloids that are in the kratom leaf, the two most prevalent alkaloids are mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine. And mitragynine makes up about 25, about 60% of the alkaloid content and is less potent than morphine, about 25% as potent as morphine, and does have some stimulant effects. But the 7-hydroxymitragynine, it only makes up 2% of kratom's alkaloid content, but it's much more potent. It has selective mu and kappa opioid receptor agonist effects, but it's about 14 times more potent, and it has a much more potent CNS stimulant effect as well. So I think that's where we're seeing the risk, is that in the preparation and by drying the leaves, and also by genetically selecting kratom leaves that have more 7 mitragynine, you're getting a much more uh, potent product. So just I I see it in parallel a lot to like the harvesting and uh, agriculture of cannabis. You're you're selecting for either more THC or less THC, depending on the desired effect of the plant.
0: You're absolutely right. I mean, this I think it's very much intentional. So and, and then that's where we're seeing these problems. Absolutely with it. There's some data, and, and, and not a lot, but they're you know talking about where where you're getting more opiate-like effects, more stimulating effects, and this is relating to dose. In the lower doses, what's rated as more than like two to four grams, you're getting more of the stimulant effects. Uh, average doses three to five grams, higher doses five to eight grams, you're getting the more opiate-type effects. But again, where you're seeing this alteration in manufacturing, I don't I don't know that that can be always reliable anymore. And also, you're seeing in the different what they call veins from the leaf. So the red, white, and then the mix, the green mix, and red is supposed to be the more s- sedating. the white is the stimulating, and then green is what's supposed to be a mix of the two. right And again, they're they're saying there's not as much research in there to say how much of that is true.
1: Right. And you know, when you talk to patients who uh, use Kratom, they give you a clinical response that's quite consistent with this. I hear people tell me that it's pretty stimulating at lower doses. They take one or two scoops. They don't know. I mean, people very commonly can't tell me how many grams they're using a day. They just tell me, well, yes. I take a couple of scoops and make a like an iced tea, or they make a hot tea, or they take so many capsules. And then at some point, it kicks into more of a CNS depressant effect or an opioid effect. And I'm finding that most of the folks that I interact with, I'm sure this is true for you as well, because of the kind of work we do in addiction, people are using much more than two or four grams of kratom. I see folks using much more in the teen or 20 range, you know, Fifteen grams, twenty grams. Uh, at which point, they their tolerance is very, very high for this for this substance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Some of the symptoms of intoxication, and that depends on again dose. We see, and I think this can get confused. A lot of people, I don't think, recognize the versus withdrawal. Don't you think?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's pretty common, in, in, especially when you have a drug that's both stimulating and um, has opioid effect, it can be difficult to discern. But also with this, with a product like this, people don't expect it to cause a withdrawal syndrome because if you have easy access to it from places like 7-Eleven or smoke shops, or it's been recommended to you by a friend to help with something like withdrawal, you don't expect Kratom in and of itself to cause withdrawal. So I think there's a lot of missed and mixed expectations and myth um, about what kratom can and can't do. And I hear a lot of people say, well, kratom's not addictive. Kratom's not a problem. Kratom's just a natural pain reliever or energy supplement, kind of like uh, you can find it on the counter in a lot of gas stations next to the five-hour energy product. So people don't think, well, this could be really problematic.
0: That is correct. So some of the side effects and and symptoms of acute intoxication and this is common with this is nausea and vomiting and this can be intractable patients can present with this and not have any idea that this is from their kratom use and i have seen this and patients actually present to the emergency room with pretty severe nausea and vomiting especially sometimes your um opiate naive or new users have you seen this Paula
1: i have yeah just like you do with other opiates and some people are more sensitive to the um, nauseating effect of opiates than others right
0: yeah and then you see the typical like itching sweating dry mouth then you get increased urination decreased appetite obviously constipation then some of your stimulant effects hallucinations psychosis the hypertension tachycardia seizures and I've had a patient who's experienced this and did not even attribute this to the kratom. And this does not have to be even in high doses.
1: Yeah, I've had a couple, I've had one or two patients who've presented with seizures and we've been unable to identify any other cause other than kratom use. Had a young patient that was admitted to my service who had a history of some substance use, but had pretty much whittled it down to kratom thinking he was doing really well. Only taking kratom. Because he had previously been using opioids and marijuana, but because of some legal issues needed to be off of those. So he was taking Kratom and presented to the emergency room with the first time seizure. His neurological workup was negative, And he was admitted to my team for uh, medical management of a withdrawal syndrome that emerged. And he was using high dose Kratom. I think we could pretty much attribute his seizure. Uh, actually, he had had two seizures before he presented to the hospital to his kratom use.
0: Yes, that, I think that is, far, that is far more common than they, I think we're even aware of. All right, some of the opiate effects too that you're also seeing is you can see respiratory depression with this. Then liver toxicity is noted. There's hyperpigmentation, which is I think unique to kratom.
1: Yeah, I haven't heard about that. I haven't heard about the hyperpigmentation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an, I think that's an interesting one. So, a couple of different things to just be aware of. This does not show up as a natural opiate on point of care drug screens. And this, so that's a good point to note, to be aware of on your emergency room talk screens. It will show up on your drug screens, but that will require specific testing. And then Kratom often has an onset of action within five to 10 minutes, duration is two to five hours treatment, Paula?
1: Yeah. I mean, for acute intoxication, I would approach it like you would, depending on if it's more of an opioid intoxication picture or a stimulant intoxication picture. So obviously if they're um, appearing or presenting with opioid overdose presentation, so reduced respirations, uh, bradycardia, etc., cetera, obviously you want to give them naloxone and monitor them very closely. If they are psychotic, tachycardic, warm, or have had a seizure, you're gonna treat them like you would uh, for a stimulant intoxication, which is to put them in a calm room, be reassuring, give them benzodiazepines, and obviously treat for seizure precautions. And then you wanna monitor for withdrawal symptoms or withdrawal syndrome if they're gonna stop using Kratom, which is hopefully the goal. And you want to just think about, well, what receptors has the kratom been acting on and what do we need to account for? Most people have opioid-like withdrawal syndrome, so they have muscle aches, bone aches. Uh, They might have terrible anxiety and dysphoria, which is really common with any kind of opioid withdrawal, runny nose, sniffly nose, runny eyes, but they might have more of a mixed stimulant opioid withdrawal presentation. So they might have irritability, depression, jerky movements, excessive dreaming, and that kind of thing. The withdrawal management of, a st- of stimulant detoxification or stimulant use is mostly supportive. While you're treating someone for their opioid withdrawal with medications, with fluids and clonidine, viscerol, you might even consider uh, buprenorphine to help with a more severe withdrawal syndrome that's what we did for this young patient who had presented with seizures he had been using very high dose kratom and then you want to think about what's next after you treat someone's withdrawal syndrome what are you going to do if they have cravings and desire to continue using kratom in spite of negative consequences and Darlene I had a I had a patient who had very long history of severe alcohol use disorder he was a patient who had recurrent issues with staying off of alcohol. He also had struggled in the past using benzodiazepines and had dabbled with opioids. You know, anytime he could get opioid prescription, he would, you know, just to numb out and pretty much just tie it into his substance use disorder thinking. He got introduced to Kratom, unfortunately, during a period of sobriety from alcohol when he was doing very well from his alcohol use disorder. And he immediately became tolerant to Kratom and had increased use with higher and higher doses and presented with a withdrawal syndrome whenever he tried to stop. And remembering what you said, that kratom is short-acting, so it has a fast onset of action and a short duration of action, which anytime you're dealing with a substance which acts pharmacodynamically like this on the brain, it has a far higher risk of addiction. So it acts quickly and it has a short-acting effect, The brain is more likely to chase after it. This is why we use long-acting drugs to treat withdrawal and also in maintenance of substance use disorder. And for him, we ended up transitioning to low-dose suboxone or buprenorphine naloxone, which was pretty effective for his Kratom cravings and withdrawal syndrome. He was able to abstain from Kratom, although he did have several relapses because he found that the stimulating effect of Kratom was very desirable. And even when he was on buprenorphine naloxone maintenance therapy, it helped with the withdrawal syndrome, but it didn't give him that same effect of energy, increased libido. And uh, he, he struggled. He really did struggle. And also he had this mindset where Kratom is accessible. He could buy it anywhere he wanted. It was kind of um, socially acceptable to just buy this tea online and drink tea in the morning. And it gave him a bit of energy. And he's like, well, doc, you know, it's just kind of like coffee. And why shouldn't I do it? And so we had to have conversations and use motivational interviewing regarding his reasons for not wanting to be on Kratom and why it wasn't working for him. But it's a tricky little substance, that's for sure. What what else have you done um, or used when pa- patients have presented to you uh, using Kratom?
0: Oh, Paula, I just feel like you're talking about my patients. I have, tra- I have treated the exact same thing. I mean, I could, you, you just change up the age and same scenario, I, and I have the same thing, is this is something that I think we're seeing over and over again. And then there's the patients who are probably struggling with this, who aren't presenting for treatment for that same reason as they feel like it is causing them distress, but they just don't feel like, why should I stop using? Even though they're experiencing fairly significant withdrawal with escalating doses. And unfortunately, some of them I think are experiencing some of that significant mood dysphoria. And that is probably the biggest challenge is because of this dual effect is we're not able to completely treat that with just buprenorphine alone, completely off label, because it's more of looking at it just thinking about the stimulant effect and some of the latest research that has come out with just Methamphetamine abuse with, you know, bupropion. I've tried a few with that and have seen some improvement, but they need a lot of, like, you know, therapies and support that way because it's that mood dysphoria that you're talking about. And I think it's some of those thinking errors too. Some are seeing significant negative consequences in their life, and it's the same with addiction, but it's that ease and accessibility. That's the issue that they're still struggling with. Does that make sense that it's so easy? That's the challenge.
1: Absolutely. And what we're talking about with Kratom is we see this happening with cannabis too, especially now with cannabis being either recreationally legal in a lot of states or medically legal in a lot of states. Having this discussion with patients that just because a substance is available and legal, it doesn't mean it's good for our brain. And that can be true not only for chemicals, but for for other addictive things, whether it's being on our phone all the time, eating unhealthy food, engaging in, in activities that are otherwise kind of derailing our ability to just sit in discomfort until it passes.
0: I think the one really important point to bring up is the concern and why we're discussing kratom is there has been multiple deaths with kratom. There's a report of Kratom with just plain old Benadryl over-the-counter cough syrups and kratom combined with caffeine, people have died. So, I mean, I think sometimes there's this myth, and I think that's the most important thing if our take-home message is that they think it's safe as long as I don't combine it with my opiates or my benzodiazepines, which patients are often doing. Most people who are using this thinking that they're using it as a withdrawal mechanism, well, people relapse, and so then they're using, they're co-using with another substance, and you're high risk of death and overdose. Using it with any kind of substance, and most people are on multiple substances, people are dying. That's the difference, is it's not a safe drug, and it has not been listed for any medical use. A child that jumped off a bridge was found to only have kratom in their system, so it causes psychosis. I think that's the most important thing is it has a lot of interactions. And when you don't know how there's so many different effects in a vulnerable brain, and you don't know what, who's going to be vulnerable for the stimulant effects or opiate effects, it just takes a small amount.
1: True. Yeah, there's, an, there's a good um, article in the lay press. It's back from 2016. But the New York Times did a great article in January uh, Jan- on January 3rd, 2016, called Kratom, an addict's alternative is found to be addictive itself. So, I think that's the thing. It's, you know, just remembering that some people are really vulnerable, like you said, and it is, according to the, the DEA, it's a, it's a drug of concern is what they've classified it as. It, it was federally regulated for a short amount of time, and they've banned it in some states, right? And other states have legislating, legislation pending, but overall, um, it's labeled a drug of concern and it's being monitored. And it's banned and controlled in many areas, actually, interestingly, of Southeast Asia itself, where it originates, including Malaysia. It's a banned drug. It's a controlled substance. And many other countries have banned it, including Australia, Denmark, Germany, New Zealand, Romania. And it's been banned in Thailand since 1943 um, in an act called the Kratom Act of 1943. So that's interesting to me because it's an endogenous plant to those areas with effects that are used obviously by native populations, but the government there has obviously identified the negative consequences to be greater than the benefits. The DEA in 2013 said there was no legitimate medical use for Kratom And then the FDA in 2018, they said, just like you've been saying, Darlene, it's not safe or effective for any medical condition at all. And um, it's it's on the watch list and it has been seized. So shipments coming into the country have been seized by the FDA because of risk and concern of poisonings. So these adverse effects, and if you try and track down like specific events, such as deaths or poisonings or adverse events, it's a little bit hard to track down because it's not commonly tested for. Um, like you mentioned earlier, Darlene, it's not tested for in a traditional urine tox screen or a point of care tox screen, you have to actually perform a gas chromatography or a mass spectrometry to look for the alkaloids of kratom to identify it. So I think maybe sometimes we're missing it. And also a lot of times it's probably in the mix with other substances, like you said. Yeah. In August of 2016, the DEA uh, did classify Um, kratom as a controlled substance, one, uh, because there were about 44 known kratom-related deaths. But then they withdrew their announcement a couple of months later. I remember this I don't know if you remember this in 2016 because there was massive public protest and there was this these lobbyists who came forward from the Congress and the senators uh, and the Senate that said, oh no, you know, we need access to this. This is a natural, safe alternative to opiates and um, we want to have it. And so there was pressure on the side of, um, of the legislation that actually withdrew that controlled substance one classification and that became into the hands of the state. So now individual states passed the law for what's legal and what's uh, what's not legal. And that's why we currently in Utah have Kratom accessible to us, right? You can go to Seven Eleven 11 and buy it. And I think that you have to look up your individual state. In Utah, which is where we're broadcasting from, there was an FDA recall um, in 2018 because the supply was, um, a certain batch was found to be contaminated with salmonella and there was also a concern for safety bill passed it in, passed in 2019 called the Kratom Consumer Protection Act and that just basically didn't ban it or recall it but just required that anyone who distributes or sells or offers to sell Kratom follow certain labeling requirements, which you know in my mind it, it's just, that doesn't say much right? It's kind of like bath salts mm-hmm. all, all you have to do is say this is bath salts and it's not for human consumption, but everyone in the market who wants it still knows what it is. Pretty much you can... Drive down um, certain street in Salt Lake, and there's a whole shop that's a kratom shop. You can get it at um, head shops, convenience stores. You certainly can buy it online. I don't know where most of your patients get it, but I would say the majority of my patients just buy it online. What about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, most patients, it's like I said, it's at your con- local convenience store. Large quantities, they're usually buying online, but most of them, they tell, they just tell me it's it's easily accessible, and this is the problem. This is what gives this illusion that it's safe.
1: Right. That's exactly right. And, you know, we talked about if people, if you know someone or if you have a patient or um, who has trouble with kratom overusing it, they meet criteria for a substance use disorder. There's no specific medical treatments that are FDA approved for kratom addiction, right? We talked about buprenorphine, but that would be an off-label use of suboxone or buprenorphine, right? Right. Yes. Really, I would approach it with behavioral therapy and maybe consider, you know, consulting an addiction specialist if you feel uncomfortable with, with the presentation of your patient. Good resource would be to look at the drugabuse.gov website, um, which is an NIH website, and they they update and have Kratom drug facts, they have a good PDF, they have information that's available in Spanish, and um, you can cite, you can get their article, you can cite it, you can reference it, and you can give it to your patients in terms of giving them some information about the possible adverse effects and why you want to monitor someone's liver enzymes, for example, if they're using this routinely, other possible harmful effects. So that's one resource that I do like. Yes.
0: That's a really great resource. All right. I think that sounds good. Anything else we haven't covered, Paula?
1: No, I think we're good. I think, I think we just need to remember as healthcare providers to ask patients if they're using. It's just part of any good history and physical is when you're reviewing what people are taking for medications is always think about asking what they're taking as supplements or um, alternative and complementary medicines, because people in this we have a very high percentage of our population that does engage and are interested in these kinds of um, you know offerings. And so, ask them, be curious, make sure you get a good history. If you don't understand what they're saying or what they're using, research it so that we can be better informed to care for our patients. So, getting the history, having the conversation, making sure you understand what people are taking, and uh, and then educating yourself. And uh, I want to just give credit to. Um, Kayla Mills. She was the farm D candidate who helped um, me present on this topic for Project Echo a couple of years ago, and she prepared a lot of the slides, which made our research for this talk today um, very easy. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Paula.
0: Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. for this is only hosting guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source as each person is unique or advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers